I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, and welcome to Prospect Magazine's podcast, Headspace, where we bring together Prospect's editors and experts pushing the question: what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and this week we look at the governments of three countries, all of which have, in their way, a highly sensitive relationship with Britain, the US, Russia and Saudi Arabia. Each country's leadership poses a challenge. How can we deal with them? What are the risks involved? The UK is simultaneously trying to encourage Saudi Arabia to support a political solution and revive peace talks in Yemen, while at the same time pitching these fighter jets. Jane Kinnamont is an expert on Saudi Arabia at Chatham House. She's been in and spoken to my colleague Samir Rahim and Steve Bloomfield, who we'll hear from first here. I'm here with Jane Kinnamont from Chatham House, uh, who's also the author of a a fantastic essay in the new issue of Prospect, uh, Desert Storm, all about uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the new Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Hello, Jane. Hello. Uh, We're also joined by Samir Rahim, who's Prospect's managing editor uh, and uh, arts and books editor as well. Samir, hello. Hello. Uh, Jane, before we talk about your piece in detail since it's come out uh Mohammed bin Salman or MBS as he likes us to call him has been on something of a world tour hasn't he first in London then in Washington DC and very soon off to Paris as well what has been the point of this tour from his perspective and do you think he can deem it a success there has been something of a mismatch between his core objectives and those of the countries receiving him, because the US, the UK, and next France are hoping that he'll essentially come on a huge shopping trip and that he'll be investing a lot of money in their businesses. But his priority now is to get their investment into Saudi Arabia to try to create jobs at a time when Saudi finances are more cash-strapped because of trends in the oil market. So interestingly, when he came to the UK, Not much real business actually came out of that visit. There were headlines that people talked about where the government said, we will aim for $100 billion of trade and investment in both directions over the next five or possibly 10 years. (laughs) Which fooled many people into thinking that there was a shopping spending spree, but in fact it was entirely fictitious. Nothing was, was just almost a hope. nothing was concrete. Exactly, it's an aspiration. Well, that's great. I would love, you know, to have a hundred billion dollars myself. 
um, always be suspicious of the large round numbers in these sorts of contexts. In fact, the Saudi oil company announced $2 billion worth of contracts during the visit. And then there was a headline about a Typhoon fighter jet deal being signed. But when you read it, in fact, Saudi Arabia signed a letter of intent to buy UK typhoons. That might lead to a real deal, but equally, it might not. Again, you saw the smoke and mirrors when he went to Washington DC and there was this rather interesting press conference where Donald Trump had this large cardboard infographic showing Saudi arms deals, all of which, in fact, were deals that had already been announced and were just being repackaged for PR purposes. They weren't anything that came out of the visit. So business so far limited. There could be more that comes out of his visits to San Francisco and meetings with people from Silicon Valley, which is his top priority. Politically, also, we don't know exactly what was said when he's had one-on-ones with Donald Trump, with Pompeo, with many important people from the new new US administration about what will happen next with Iran. That thing of Saudi wanting investment rather than Saudi travelling the world with a checkbook and saying, you know, how many of your fighter jets can can I pick up? That's a bit of a change in the relationship, isn't it, between Saudi Arabia and the West? That's right. And it's being under recognised. You know, Trump was touting the idea that Saudi Arabia is spending these billions of dollars in arms deals and saying to them, you know, even the amount the US spends on defence is peanuts for you guys. And that's somewhat embarrassing for Mohammed bin Salman in the eyes of his domestic audience. Yes, they want him to be welcomed in the US, but the idea that their money is kind of being frittered away endlessly on arms purchases overseas isn't how they want to be seen. They want to be judged in a in a different way. And a, a lot of the efforts they were putting into the PR around the visit was to try to publicise Saudi art, Saudi music, uh, create this sense that there's a kind of youth-led cultural renaissance that they can use for cultural diplomacy. But still the main message being given to American voters is these guys are going to spend a lot of money on American jobs. You mentioned the PR. I mean, anyone who was in London when uh, Mohammed bin Salman was here will have seen the billboards that went up welcoming him, the uh, the hashtags on social media. Every newspaper, it seemed, carried big adverts, uh, sometimes actually next to articles that were critical yes. of him. Um, what was the what was the purpose of that PR campaign, do you think? Some of it was done by a a British-owned company that's basically touting for business in Saudi Arabia. So part of it may have been uh, a desire to kind of win favour. Not necessarily the sort of billboards with a prince's face are very much the kind of thing that can backfire in the UK where the knee-jerk reaction to anything is to be quite snarky. Um, At least they weren't in places they could be easily graffitied, but these sorts of strategies are high risk. And then you also had the opposition bus, uh, which I was surprised to see coming down Piccadilly because it had a huge picture on the front of Mohammed bin Zayed from the UAE. And I thought, they got it wrong. That's not who's visiting. But then it had Mohammed bin Salman on the side uh, and it was in opposition to the the Yemen war, trying to denounce both leaders at once. Um, Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the irony about the arms sales is that when Saudi Arabia wasn't really using its army, it spent hundreds of millions of pounds on our weapons. But now that it is actually engaging in a war... You're saying that um, it's more cash-strapped and it's not buying as many weapons as it as it might be. Well, they overall they're spending more on defence, even as austerity is biting elsewhere. So defence is one of the few areas of the budget where public spending increased a lot on Saudi Arabia this year. 
uh, and they've committed to buying a lot from the US. But I think very often these particularly big purchases of planes are used for political reasons, basically to play big Western arms exporters like the UK and France off against each other. So when the Qatar crisis came up and Qatar was worried about Western support, what did they do? They bought a bunch of British typhoons. And I felt that was somewhat embarrassing because it implies that their perception is that these kinds of moves are a way of buying favour in the West and they might not be entirely wrong. Um, the UK's also managed to sell typhoons to Oman, another strong ally. Uh, but both the UAE and Saudi Arabia have kind of dithered over whether they want them. And in some ways, politically, it's more useful to leave these kind of deals dangling uh, because that will then be a focus for diplomats in future conversations. And there is this uneasy balance where on a visit like this, the UK is simultaneously trying to encourage Saudi Arabia to support a political solution and revive peace talks in Yemen, while at the same time pitching these fighter jets. And, you know, they will argue that these things do add up, that being a military supplier also gives you political leverage, but it's perhaps not quite so simple. You mentioned Yemen, and obviously that was one aspect of the these trips that has been difficult for Mohammed yes. bin Salman, um, both here in the UK, where there was a lot of criticism from the opposition, and even Theresa May had to say, oh, well, when I'm meeting him, I'm definitely going to talk about human rights in Yemen. Uh, and also in the US, where there was, a, there was a report from Congress that came out during his trip as well. Do you think that he and the people around him have been taken aback by that? Were they expecting that sort of pushback? In the preparations for the visit, you know, I think the risk of protest was flagged and was something that they will have been concerned about. You know, when I arrived in in Washington last week, I went straight to uh, the Saudi art exhibition curated by Mohammed bin Salman's foundation. And the first thing I saw was called pink activists waving banners saying stop killing children in Yemen. And what interested me was the Saudis that I saw were not reacting in any hostile way. They all got out their phones and filmed it. And they were quite intrigued to see this example of protest that you don't have at home and which made something of a, of a spectacle. Uh, but more, more seriously, there wasn't... I think that the UK in particular has raised their worries about the situation in Yemen, but that there hasn't really been significant progress. And we've seen more missiles coming from the Houthis in Yemen into Saudi territory, which, if anything, will harden Saudi resolve and make them increasingly convinced that this is a war of necessity for self-defence, even though it didn't begin with the Houthis well, firing. As you point out in your article for us, that was one of the reasons why they started the war in the first place, was because they worried that possibly the Houthis, possibly backed by Iran, might be able to lob missiles into Saudi Arabia. They weren't then, but they really are now. That's right. And while it might highlight the counterproductive aspects of the war in terms of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy, it is also the reality that there is now. It will make it easier for Saudi Arabia to argue that other countries should be giving it arms. It also increases the risk of a, a wider uh, escalation between Saudi Arabia and Iran because they see this as Iran firing missiles at them. Um, but moving on to something slightly different, um, Mohammed bin Salman has been presented as somebody who's going to not only undertake Islamic reforms um, within Saudi itself, so changing the rules on uh, women being allowed to drive, some questioning of the guardianship system, but I don't think anything specific has, has come out of that. But not, not only that, he's also been presented as somebody who can, in the broadest sense, 
reform Islam or he can sort it out to us. Do you think that, there's, that we're putting a bit too much faith in this one crown prince um, to uh, sort out a hugely complicated theological territory? So far, this discussion has rather lacked depth. So Mohammed bin Salman has made comments welcomed by the West about fighting or even destroying extremism uh, and returning to what he portrays as an authentic Saudi Islam that would be more moderate. He is claiming uh, with only a partial accuracy that Saudi Arabia used to be traditionally a lot more modern and open and that it, it became austere uh, to compete with Iran after the Iranian revolution and because of the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood. So he's kind of trying to blame outsiders for the austere and often intolerant Islam that has been so much criticised in Saudi Arabia and hark back to a semi-imaginary past. But what does it mean to reform Islam? Ultimately, it will need to be something that is debated and worked on by religious leaders. And it rather harks back to your piece in the last issue about the difficulty that Western politicians have in calling for reforms to Islam. Westerners hope that Muslim leaders will have more credibility. But often, political leaders in Muslim societies also aren't the people that necessarily have the most credibility. I mean, we've seen over decades in Saudi Arabia that clerics who have been appointed by the state have often run out of credibility among the young population because they are always seen as following what the political leaders say because of their position, because they're on state salaries, etc. So there is, I think, a, a certain space lacking in Saudi Arabia currently. You have the official clerical establishment, you know, the government can certainly do important things in terms of making sure that preachers at mosques aren't being actively sectarian and so forth. But actually, but the space for these real debates about what the role of Islam is in society, how it should be practiced today, it is being quite squeezed by a, a crackdown on a number of independent clerical voices for fear that they will be sources of political dissent. And the whole idea of you know the the multiplicity of interpretations in Islam. Well, you know, in, in in the Grand Mosque at Mecca, it used to be the case you had the four different schools of thought that um, you could go to just with physically within the space of the uh, the Grand Mosque itself and and get different opinions on it uh, on various rulings. But uh, the Saudi uh, royal family, I don't think, really likes any kind of dissent, and least of all religious dissent, particularly when it can be sort of. Um, 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 Put to political purposes. Over time, they've become more inclusive of the different schools of Islam. So, under King Abdullah, the Council of Senior Clerics was widened to include the different Sunni uh, schools, although not going as far as including the Shia, um, although they're quite a sizable minority in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but yes, at the same time, you know, over the past year, there have been a number of important independent clerics uh, associated with a movement called the Sahwa or Islamic Awakening of the 1990s. Um, above all, Sheikh Salman al-Auda, who have been arrested, not in fact because they were conservative. Sheikh Salman al-Auda was in favour of women driving, but it seems that he had made some tweets calling for reconciliation with Qatar, which was seen as anathema to the current government. You mentioned just there the women driving. That's the big move that most people in the West will be aware of over the past few months. Um, has that just been something that the West has sort of clung to and say, aha, it proves that he is a reformer? 
Um, or has it been sort of similarly welcomed and seen as similarly important in Saudi Arabia itself? This is definitely not just something that is being done for international effect, although it's had a huge PR bonus, uh, probably the, the quickest win they could possibly have in the court of international public opinion. It does make a big difference in Saudi Arabia, where the society is basically split over this. There are certainly people who resist it, both men and women. But a lot of it has to do with the changes in the economy. Over the past 15 or 20 years, the country has invested massively in educating women who now get the best degrees in Saudi Arabia. As the oil wealth is less abundant, women need to work. And it's complicated to get to work when you can't drive and there's no public transport. And for instance, the newspapers have complained about the fact that so much money is spent on hiring drivers who are almost always foreigners, the perception that they're sending their money overseas and that people aren't benefiting from it locally. So there's been a lot of economic arguments made which have slightly taken the sting out of the the symbolism. And just finally, um, what one of the things I thought was particularly interesting in your piece for us was when you talked about how um, how Bin Salman could be undone, and it was not necessarily that there might be other factions within the royal family uh, or opposition necessarily, but more the fact that his the constituency that he's relying on for support at the moment, the young, they may be the ones that say, actually, hang on. You haven't reformed the economy. Uh, you haven't given us the freedoms we wanted to. Um, how how could you see that playing mm. out over the next decade? He is enjoying a honeymoon period at the at the moment. Even being a young person at the helm of Saudi politics has a huge novelty, and he's been able to make relatively quick wins bringing in entertainment, allowing Saudis to go to concerts and soon cinemas and all of this. And people like the fact that he is promising that some big new economic projects will create jobs. That is going to be relatively difficult. So I would imagine that, you know, three, four, five years down the line, some of that initial sheen will have worn off. How that manifests itself is quite unclear because Currently, there's no political opposition. There's no obvious rival within the ruling family because the people who might have been rivals have all been deliberately taken out. And when Saudis look around the region, many of them think that the Arab Spring and its aftermath have shown that actually rebellion, regime change, seeking revolution is not very worthwhile. So not many people see an alternative to family rule. Um, But... Over time, all of those things could evolve. Mohammed bin Salman has made enemies inside his his family uh, and also outside the country. And you might see different forces coming together to oppose him in some way. Assassination is also something that people fear. And so some of his most ardent supporters who I've spoken to in recent weeks have said, we really support what what he's doing, but we have to make sure sure that this isn't a one-man show because we don't want these reforms that we are buying into to fall apart if something should happen to him. I think we'll leave it there. Jane Kinnamont, Samir Rahim, thank you. Well, whatever anyone else makes of the new regime in Riyadh, we know that one person who likes it very much is Donald Trump. However, he's not without some of his own problems at home, not least because of those nagging, pesky questions about collusion with Russians in the 2016 election. Questions that just won't go away. And one person who's trying to make sure they don't is Luke Harding, who's the author of the New York Times bestselling Collusion. Um, Now, Luke, there's been a lot of murk. Some people say 
there's still a lot we don't know. How much do we really know about how deeply involved the Trump campaign was with Moscow? Well, it's it's a, a huge question with a with an answer that stretches back in time. Uh, I think what you have to understand is that to to make sense of the extraordinary events of the US election of 2016, you have to go go back to Soviet Moscow to Donald Trump, Trump's first trip there in, in the summer of 1987. And to, to really, what I would say has been a kind of on-off courting of Donald Trump. Now, I, I write about this in collusion. We, we know that Trump was brought over to Moscow back in the 80s by the, by the KGB at the invitation of the Soviet government. And, and the point is that he had the sort of characteristics that the KGB we know from their secret memos what we're interested in he was he was vain ambitious narcissistic corruptible a poor analyst and so on and several things intervened uh the soviet union collapsed um i think we can't say that uh trump is sort of prancing around in a in a in a russian military uniform in in, in the privacy of the oval office but what we what we can say is is firstly that his property empire empire has been used essentially as a laundromat for Russian cash uh, over the decades. I mean, I write this in my book, and of course he hasn't sued me, and we know he's a pretty litigious guy. Uh, but also that there was a, a, a really a kind of full-blown espionage operation starting around 2011, 2012, 2013, featuring Trump's infamous visit to Moscow for the Miss Universe Beauty Contest, um, and, and starring career intelligence officers who met with Trump and his family, um, Donald Trump Jr., famously um, in Trump Tower, Jared Kushner, uh, the Russian ambassador, uh, and so on. And this, this of course, is all um, protein for Robert Mueller, the special counsel who's investigating collusion. We've had a, had a heap of in- indictments already, and I think there are clearly more to follow. You talked about some high-profile names there, you know, Trump's son, questions about him, Trump's son-in-law. But do you think it's really a large proportion of the inner circle? Is that what you're saying, who have had direct contacts in Moscow? Yeah, I, I mean, I write in my book, it's almost as if his his early cabinet was picked by Vladimir Putin, uh, because everybody has some kind of Russian connection, whether it's Paul Manafort, who of, of anybody in America had, had the best contacts with, with the oligarchs uh, and, and powerful people in, in Kiev and in Moscow as well, or, or Wilbur Ross, Commerce Secretary, doing business with Putin's son-in-law, or Michael Flynn, uh, shoveling uh, appearance fees from Russia today into his back pocket and lying to the FBI about his contacts with the Russian ambassador, or, or Jared Kushner meeting meeting Russian bankers, uh, and so on and so on and so on, or, or from policy aides like Carter Page, who's who's really a kind of very curious person in this story, going to Moscow and having discussions in in sports bars with representatives of Rosneft. There's there's clearly a kind of meshing between the two sides, and I think. Um, Donald Trump's best defense, uh, and it's not much of a defense, is that I was an idiot. My my team were idiots when these Russians kept coming to us, bringing gifts, promising information, emails, etc. We, we we didn't know what they were talking about. But um, I mean, I suppose it <clears throat> is true that most political campaigns would accept um, the on the opposition if that was there to be had. I, I wonder how many political campaigns would really stop and say, oh, I'm not sure this is quite ethical getting this stuff from overseas. Well, well, I, I mean, there's the, 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 the good honest scandal of Watergate where you have one group of Americans sincerely smearing another group of Americans. Uh, and you have this, which I think is Watergate plus, plus, plus. You have one group of Americans basically dialing a friend uh, and asking for, for assistance from a foreign power traditionally 
considered to be uh, America's enemy, certainly by by mainstream Republicans. That was the view until Trump came along and shook everything up. Um, and so we're talking about collusion, and we're also talking about potentially treasonous behavior. Now, I don't think we're there with with treason yet. I think we're across the line in terms of collusion. And and you can you can tell from Trump's manner the fact that he tweets about this so much that this is vexing him very much indeed. And if as he insist that there is nothing to see here it's all fake why would it bother him so much i think it bothers him so much because um uh, there's the sex as set out in the dossier by christopher Steele, which i think to a large extent is 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 probably irrelevant although although almost certainly true in some form but it's it's the money it's the deals as richard Dearlove put it that the former spook chief in the uk that trump may have made with russians after 2008 when his financial situation was terrible um, and uh, you've talked about Mueller. I know you're just back from the United States. Um, what do you see as happening? Do you think, like, regardless of what Trump's done, do you think he's in really serious trouble? Or do you think partisanship and Washington sclerosis is going to keep him safe? Well, uh, um, I think he's in, in serious trouble. Uh, I think he would like to farm Mueller. He hasn't done it thus far. Um, what's interesting about the Mueller investigation is that it, it, nothing is leaking. Each time one of these indictments drops, you, you, you just sit there and you have a moment of kind of dumbfoundment because there in, in, in cool, crisp, linear legal prose is an exposi- exposition of what actually happened. And, and it's it's like the revenge of empiricism. We have all this kind of no- noise and cacophony and then, then suddenly there it is. Um, so... Uh, I think this is very serious, but I mean, ultimately, of course, it's a kind of political calculation as to as to what happens with the House, which the Democrats will probably win later this year, whether they begin impeachment proceedings in 2019 and whether actually Trump can tough this out. I, I, I think actually probably he can kind of tough it out, but but he he is obviously already the most sort of scandalous president in US history and there will be numerous books in addition to mine, movies, uh, histories written by people who are not born yet uh, about this very sketchy period. Um, now, of course, America's dealings with Russia are one thing, but um, at the moment, front and centre of most people's minds, uh, the Russian involvement of what's gone on in Salisbury. Um, now, how shocked were you about um, this, uh, what looks like nerve agent poisoning? Well, we've seen we've seen this movie before. Uh, I mean, I wrote a, a, another book called A Very Expensive Poison about the 2006 um, murder of Alexander Litvinenko, who who actually was a more high profile uh, dissident critic of Putin than Sergei Skripal, um, who was being very noisy in London, as as the Russian government would see it. And of course, his reward was this radioactive cup of tea. Um, so. Uh, would they do it again? Yeah, they would do it again. They would do it again. Um, uh, uh, and actually, in some ways, it's a kind of rerun of, of the whole Litvinenko um, case um, using, I mean, last time it was Polonium, this time it's Novichok, this this super nerve agent developed in the Soviet Union in the 70s and, and, and 80s. Um, and I think, I think it's interesting how we interpret this. Uh, I, I actually think it was demonstrative. I mean, you have formal denials from Putin saying they had nothing to do with it, but clearly Novichok is is something of a kind of gruesome calling card. And I think I think Mr. Skripal was actually, I mean, he was the target, but he wasn't really the target. He was the instrument, and the ultimate target, I think, um, is sort of the Russian elite oligarchs and particularly people inside the spy agencies who um, may be thinking about 
um, cooperating on some level with Western intelligence. I mean, what you have to understand to turn it back to Trump is that this espionage operation in the States um, was big. And a lot of people um, inside the sort of spy bureaucracy know some of it. They don't know all of it. And, and clearly, this is a reminder that, that were they to, to speak out, then they, they can never relax and that their families are in grave danger. Um, and so, and of course, the timing around the Russian parliamentary election is, is no coincidence either. So this, this was a sort of, this was a terrible uh, human um, uh, attack and assassination, but it was also uh, in a sort of dark way, geostrategic. Um, on this um, podcast last week, um, my colleague um, Jay Elwes was um, talking to Anatole Levon, who was saying that when it comes to what Britain should do about this, it's maybe not as straightforward as you might think. The obvious thing to do, you keep talking about follow the money, is to go after the money of rich Russians in London. But it was suggested that that might actually play into Putin's hands by meaning more big money goes back to Russia. I mean, what do you think we can and, and, and should do? We've had lots of um, uh, diplomats being expelled all around the world. Is that going to make a difference? I, I don't think that'll make a huge difference. I mean, it'll, it'll dent Russia's um, international espionage operation somewhat, but it won't uh, knock it out. I, I actually think Anatole is right. I think the money is the answer. And the thing is, Russians I talk to are saying that that actually in Moscow, Putin has really been dialing up the pressure that it's becoming sort of neo-Soviet. I mean, to be clear, this is a sort of de-ideological um, or post-ideological form of the Soviet Union. It's it's not about socialism anymore. It's actually, I mean, you have a kind of a sort of story, a national story of, of maximal Russia and what you might call revanchist nationalism. But essentially, these guys are not interested in ideology. They are interested in cash. And the people around Putin are all billionaires, multi-billionaires, many of them with assets and, and, and uh, in, in London. And I think what would really cause enormous pain is if there were a very kind of big and comprehensive blacklist. Uh, involving 5,000 top Kremlin officials and their families, uh, saying not only that they can't come to the UK anymore, but but to the EU and, and the US and so on. And actually, Sochi doesn't look so great after a while, nor does Dubai, that this would cause genuine pain. And um, I think we have to be a little bit kind of creative here. I mean, no one wants war or open conflict. We've already had a conflict in Ukraine, but no one wants that to kind of escalate. Um, but... It's sort of Stalinism at home and the life of Abramovich abroad. So you can't have both. If you if you want to if you want to be super patriots, that's fine. But but then actually you can't buy houses in Belgrave Square, send your kids to to English private schools, use London lawyers and PR firms, uh, and so on. We've had um, an election of sorts in Russia. It had a very decisive outcome with a, something like three and four votes going to Vladimir Putin. Um, does that mean, I'm guessing that means he's securely entrenched for like the next six years, I think the term is, isn't it? Well, I, I mean, he's a dictator, so he's a securely entrenched for life, really, or as long as he, he, he wishes to continue. I mean, to be clear, it's not an election in any meaningful or competitive sense. It, it's more of a kind of referendum where there's only one one actual name on the the ballot paper and so who were there were other candidates weren't there? they got some of them got five percent and so on yeah but but the, the the real candidate who's called alexei navalny the real opposition candidate was forbidden from from running and and people like barry Nemtsov, who was another um major opposition politician was of course shot dead 300 meters outside the kremlin in in 2015 so it, it's not russia is not a democracy uh and e e e even 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 russians inside the kremlin will probably acknowledge 
that that it that it's not. But what we have is a era of stagnation. I mean, there's a Russian word for it. It's called zastoy, uh, and we had zastoy with with the Brezhnev period, and and this is a sort of another Brezhnevian moment actually where where putin didn't really present any new ideas he he scarcely bothered campaigning and actually it's just become a personist regime it's it's a one-man drama where where the tv news every night is all about vladimir vladimirovich and what he's done um and i think it's a sort of depressing perspective for most russians um because it's essentially the relationship between Putin and, and the Russian people is 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 a feudal one. Russia obviously is not um, a liberal democracy as we would recognise it anymore. But Putin's shown some regard in some um, places for um, the constitution, as when he stood aside for a few years to allow his prime minister to become president. Um, while well, they swap roles and then they could swap back again. Do you think something's changed? Do you think he uh, he's lost all interest in um, pr- proper procedure now? No, I mean, I mean, I think as in Soviet times, uh, he, he's interested in kind of show uh, and getting his message across. But uh, essentially, he, he's going to carry on for as long as he sees fit. Um, Margarita Simonyan, who's the head of Russia today, the main kind of Kremlin sort of English language propaganda arm, has um, has revived this Soviet era uh, noun to describe Putin. She's calling him now Vojt, which means leader uh, in a sense of sort of leader or father of the nation. Uh, or whatever, but but I, I, I thought about this for a while. I mean, certainly when I was in in uh, living in Moscow as the Guardian's correspondent between two hundred seven and two hundred eleven, I think the word dictator would have been perhaps stretching it a bit because there were still vestiges of pluralism. But now they've been wiped out, and I think what we're looking at is a twenty um, first uh, century dictatorship. Uh, I mean, the thing about Russian statesmen is that they've uh, Russian leaders is they've always combined the qualities of statesmen and villains. And I think Putin absolutely exemplifies that tradition. Terrific. Um, Luke, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening. My thanks also to our guests today, Luke Harding and Jane Kinnamont. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Jay Elwes. And you can read more on Trump, Russia and Saudi Arabia, including Jane's excellent essay on our website at www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. And whilst you're there, you might also note that our subscription rates very reasonable indeed. Please be sure to tune in again to hear more from the Prospect Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.